Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in the spirit of the season, in this episode, I wanted to talk about Victorian Christmas traditions because so many of those traditions still linger today in our own holiday celebrations. So venture down this road with me and let's take a look at some of these early traditions that started in the Victorian era. And some of them may even surprise you. So the reign of Queen Victoria had a tremendous influence on the holiday of Christmas as we know it today. Now, Queen Victoria was a queen of England, and she assumed her reign in the early 1830s, and she continued in that capacity as Queen of England until she passed away in 1901. The Victorian era typically is bracketed by the years of her reign, but if you examine English historians, they will often refer to the reign of Queen Victoria as lasting until the 1920s and slightly before her reign. So it's a period of time where there was an era of tradition and the communities were becoming more city-oriented. Cities were emerging. Prior to her reign, it was primarily a lot of agricultural communities, and the cities were much smaller around the world, including England and America. And during her reign, the world changed from an agricultural foundation primarily to an industrialized base. And so we have a lot of industrialization that was beginning to happen, a lot of inventions that were making manufacturing possible and processing of grain and processing of food products. And people were moving to the cities to work in the factories that were being created from all of this industrialization. So the royal family was one that was greatly admired during this time and there was a lot of people wanting to follow and emulate their traditions. And so Queen Victoria had a lot of influence on what became some of the traditions that we know today as Christmas in the Christmas season. And a lot of these traditions started in England and made their way over into the Americas. And in southwest Michigan, many of these traditions were adopted. You can see these things in newspapers all over Michigan when you look back at the history during this time, and you still see these traditions today moving forward. So the reign of Queen Victoria is a very fascinating period of time. of the. It's known as the Victorian era. And so the, some of the traditions... These traditions reign from everything from Christmas cards to decorated Christmas trees. And there's another thing called Christmas crackers, which I'll get into in a minute, because it's primarily an English thing, but some people over here in America may still make use of that. But it's a Christmas tradition that's very big over in England. So at the dawn of the 19th century, Christmas was hardly celebrated, at least not in the way we recognize it today. Many businesses didn't even consider Christmas to be a holiday. Gift-giving was never done at Christmas in the very beginning. It was traditionally a New Year's Eve activity or New Year's Day activity. But this was eventually moved as Christmas became more important to the Victorians. So by the end of the century, Christmas had become the biggest annual celebration on the British calendar. And likewise, 
this also became the biggest celebration on the American calendar because we followed many of the British traditions. But not all of the traditions that we celebrate during the Christmas season are entirely from British origin, as I will get into in a minute. So Victorian-era advancements in technology and industry and infrastructure, as well as having an impact on society as a whole, made Christmas an occasion that many more British people could enjoy, as well as the influence that the British Victorian traditions permeated through other countries, including the United States and Canada. One of the most significant season traditions to emerge from the Victorian era was the Christmas card. Now, this was created by a man named Sir Henry Cole, the first director of the VNA, who introduced the idea of the Christmas card in 1843. Now, the VNA is the Victoria and Albert Museum, and that is over in London, and it is the world's largest museum of applied arts, decorative arts, and design, housing a permanent collection of 2.27 million objects. And it was founded in 1852, and it was named after Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. So Sir Henry Cole, who was the first director of the VNA, introduced the idea of the Christmas card in 1843. Now Cole commissioned an artist whose name was J.C. Horsley to design a festive scene for his seasonal greeting cards and had 1,000 of them printed. Now those he didn't use himself were sold to the public. Later in the century, improvements to the chromolithic printing process made buying and sending Christmas cards pretty much affordable to anyone. So Cole was the inspiration for this idea, and the greater mechanization and widespread industrialization of the country helped to create a new middle class with a greater disposable income, which made something like Christmas cards possible because people would say, oh, this is a great gesture to send to someone. So increased prosperity across Britain saw a rising market for not only the mass-produced Christmas cards, but also mass-produced toys, decorations, and novelty items such as the Christmas cracker. Now let's take a minute and sidestep and learn about a Christmas cracker. Now you might be thinking if you're an American that this is a piece of food that you put cheese on, you know, a little piece of crushed bread. But no, that's not what a cracker is in England. A cracker, a Christmas cracker, is a cardboard paper tube wrapped in a brightly colored paper, and it's twisted on both ends. So it kind of resembles a big Tootsie Roll. And there's what's called a banger inside the cracker, which is two strips of chemically impregnated paper that react with friction so that when you pull apart the cracker, which one person holds on one end of it and the other holds on the other, and they pull it, the cracker makes a loud bang. So similar to the sound of maybe a firecracker, but maybe not as loud. And the way it is done is each person takes a end of the cracker and pulls on it. And there's usually a group around a table and everyone crosses their arms to pull all the crackers at one time. And everyone holds their own cracker in their right hand and pulls their neighbor's cracker with their free left hand. And inside the cracker, in addition to the banger, there's a paper crown made from tissue paper, a motto or a joke on a slip of paper with a little gift. 
And it's a standing joke that the mottos in the crackers are typically very unfunny or corny and often are very well known as they have the same jokes often reappearing in these crackers for decades, which is all part of the tradition. Now, crackers can be made entirely from scratch using empty toilet paper rolls and tissue paper, and the maker could then choose to include small personalized gifts for their guests. Christmas crackers are a British tradition dating back to Victorian times when in the early 1850s, a London confectioner by the name of Tom Smith started adding a motto to his sugar almond bonbons, which he sold wrapped inside a twisted paper package. And many of the bonbons were bought by men to give to women, and many of the mottos were simple love poems. So there's some early history of the cracker. Tom Smith was later inspired to add the bang when he heard the crackle of a log that he had just put on the fire. So he decided to make a log-shaped package that would produce a surprise bang, and inside would be an almond and a motto. And soon, the sugared almond was replaced with a small gift, originally sold as the Cosquet, and it soon became known by the public as the Cracker. In the 1900s, his sons, who took over the tradition of manufacturing these things, had added the paper hat, which would be inside the cracker. And then the love poems were eventually replaced with jokes or limericks, and the cracker was soon adopted as a traditional festive custom. And today, virtually every household has at least one box of crackers to pull over Christmas in England. So it's a very common thing if you're spending your holidays over in England. And you can still buy these today here in the United States. They're often at uh, places like World Market and other places like that. Um, not a lot of people are familiar with the traditions or customs of it because it's primarily an English one, but it has found its way into other countries, including China. And interestingly enough, the idea of wearing a paper crown may have originated from what was known as the Twelfth Night Celebrations, where a king or queen was appointed to look over the proceedings of the evening as part of the 12 days of Christmas celebration. So that tradition all started with a confectionery sweet shop owner named Tom Smith, who invented the cracker in the early 1840s. And it wasn't until the 1860s when he had perfected it with this bang to make it known today as what we call the Christmas cracker. Kind of an interesting history and a story. And some of you out there may already know what those are and probably celebrate with those every season, but not everyone in America I know has ever even heard of this. So it's kind of an interesting custom that is uniquely associated with the Victorian era. And some of the gifts that they would put inside during the Victorian era would range not only from the jokes, but they would also have the little small trinkets such as little whistles or miniature dolls or sometimes even as substantial as expensive jewelry, depending on the occasion and the people involved in the celebration. But more importantly, the Victorian age placed great importance on the family, and it follows that Christmas was celebrated at home. For many, the new railway networks made traveling home for Christmas possible, and railroads really became an established form of transportation in the mid to the late portion of the Victorian era. In the United States, it's quite often referred to in Michigan 
as 1870 to 1880 as being the golden age of the railroad. Even though there were railroad and railways before that, there were an extensive amount of tracks by 1870. So the idea of transporting to another part of the state was a lot easier Um, And one could go from Detroit to Chicago on the railroad or other parts of the country with the network of tracks that were laid at that point in time here in Michigan. And those people that had left the countryside to seek work in cities could now return home for Christmas and spend their precious days on the holiday with their loved ones. And family life was epitomized by the popular Queen Victoria and her husband Albert and their nine children. And what they did often inspired traditions to be followed by other people in England. And, of course, this spread across the world. And one of the most important Christmas traditions that Queen Victoria and Prince Albert established was the decorated Christmas tree, which was actually a custom introduced to Britain by Prince Albert. The idea of an indoor Christmas tree originated in Germany, where Albert was born. There's a 1848 illustrated London News, which was published, and it showed a drawing of the royal family celebrating around a tree bedecked with ornaments. And the popularity of a decorated Christmas tree inside the home grew very quickly from this depiction that was circulated not only in England, but made its way into the United States. And of course, with the idea of the Christmas tree came with it a market for tree ornaments in bright colors and reflective material that would shimmer and glitter in the candlelight. The early Christmas trees had candles on them, and so they would light these candles. And we would look at that today as a big fire hazard, but this was early in the era before the days of electricity, before they had electric lights. These were eventually, at later date, replaced with electric Christmas lights. But early on, they had candles on the branches. And mechanization and the improved printing processes meant decorations could be mass-produced and advertised to eager buyers. So the first advertisements for tree ornaments appeared in 1853. And Victorians would often combine their sparkly bought decorations with candles and homemade edible treats, and they would tie all these things to the branches with ribbons. Today, candles on the Christmas tree, as I mentioned before, have been replaced by fairy lights, and printed cards may be substituted with e-cards, and not so many being sent out through the post office as they once were. But, and even in the crackers that they sell you often will find knickknacks that are made of plastic today or plastic jewelry inside these pre-made crackers that people order. And of course, Christmas customs even today are continually changed and modified through technological advancements. You know, we have online Christmas shopping today and many times people Skype their families rather than travel to see them. Um, And they can Skype their family pretty much anywhere around the world on Christmas Day. But these traditions, even new forms of getting together, are deeply rooted in the spirit of the Victorian Christmas. And it's an integral part of how we celebrate Christmas today. Now, there's a couple other things that I would mention. Uh, Charles Dickens, as I mentioned in earlier podcasts, had a profound influence on 
the way people thought about Christmas with his publication of Christmas Carol in 1843. Charity became integral with Christmas, and it made people really become different during Christmas time when they would celebrate and look out for other people. And that is a big integral part of Christmas. Now, this recently this week, I saw this meme that someone had circulated around Facebook, and I was a little offended by it because it, it went into the effect of, and you might have seen this out there, it said, uh, uh, the Christmas Carol, when uh, rich people were had to be persuaded by spirits from the beyond to give charity. And that was the person's take on it. And that was the meme that they'd sent out there. And I thought, wow, that is um, really a narrow view of Charles Dickens. And recently, in the past two weeks, I reread The Christmas Carol. I try to do that every season. And I really took a look at the story from a, a different perspective. Yes, there is a wealthy character in the character of Scrooge that learns to not be so miserly and open up his heart so that he doesn't wind up in a dark place and he's inspired and he sees the importance of charity and there's all of that message and we all know that story. But underlying in this entire message is not just that storyline, which is so often lost in other the, these other adaptions that are out there with the, the films and that sort of thing. And there's if you read the original text, there's other very important messages within the story. One of them is fatherhood, the love of Bob Cratchit for his son, Tiny Tim, and the indelible love he had for his son, as well as the rest of his family, and the family coming together surrounding not only Tiny Tim, but themselves as a family in poor conditions. To me, there's the message of the importance of family within the story. There's a message of the importance of fatherhood. Scrooge comes through the other side of this whole experience, and he becomes a second father to Tiny Tim. Here's a man that had no children himself, could suddenly extend himself to become a second father to somebody that needed it. So it's more than just charity. In fact, there's very little, if you really look at the story, of him giving money as important in the story. Yes, he buys a turkey and sends it to the Cratchit family. More importantly, he gets involved in their lives and, you know, of course, he raises the pay of Bob Cratchit in the story. So he does do some monetary things, but it's not so much the main important thing that changed him was the fact it wasn't about charity and giving away money. It was about giving his heart and that um, you can be passionate and love other people. And sometimes we forget that during this time of year and that the message of the Christmas season is about joy and caring for people and recognizing that everybody has troubles. Everybody has a difficult time out there sometimes. And there are good times and there are bad times, and there's times when people really just need the hand of a friend on their shoulder when they're lonely or when they're uh, just having a difficult time in life. And that is the important message from the Christmas Carol that I see. There's also the message of, you know, his own nephew, Scrooge's nephew, comes in and he's overwhelming with Christmas cheer. And he's completely willing to have his uncle come and have dinner with him anytime. And he's always extending the invitation. And it's like there's nothing that would topple that in his nephew's heart, that Christmas is a time to be celebrated and have joy and laughter and 
good cheer and wishing people a Merry Christmas and a positive Happy New Year. And it's a time of looking forward and bringing your spirits to a new level and sharing that with people and putting aside and shedding any baggage that you're carrying through the troubles of the the prior months and you set it aside. And that's what you get from the nephew. And the nephew's, of course, rebuked by Scrooge early on, but then Scrooge shows up at the nephew's house and has a wonderful evening with his nephew and his family and gets connected with family. So you have that level of family as well, you know, and it's just um, a remarkable message that Charles Dickens was able to put together to change people because this was written during a time when there were workhouses and you put the poor people that couldn't pay their bills into these workhouses and if you didn't pay your bills and you went and became a debtor they sent you to prison to spend a certain amount of time there to in exchange for your debt and so Charles Dickens father was sent to debtor's prison for three months when he was a child and he as a young boy was sent to work in a workhouse to pay and send money to his family and he couldn't spend any time with his family for that entire time and that was an an important part of his history and that was something that he remembered and when he would run into this mentality as an adult when you'd hear people saying you know why do we need charity why do we need uh, Christmas spirit when we have workhouses and that sort of thing and all of those ideas got merged into this character of Scrooge and that was how it evolved so Charles Dickens had an important influence on the Victorian Christmas as well with his writings and he wrote several other stories that followed Uh, The importance of home life is expressed in The Cricket on the Hearth. There's also um, one that is more New Year's related with the chimes. And that is um, another way of looking at the story of life and to um, appreciate what you have rather than um, what you don't have and rather having resentment and that sort of thing. And that kind of comes out in the chimes. Um, There's several other stories that he wrote, some that are much smaller. Um, There's the five novelettes that he wrote on Christmas, and um, I've read three of them. I haven't read the other two. I'm going to enjoy those this Christmas season and uh, hopefully bring this back to you next year on those. But there's also a lot of other short stories that he wrote about the holidays. So Charles Dickens was an important part of the Victorian era. And the other evolution of some of the Victorian themes we find at Christmas time are brought about by religion. We have the different influences of religion and their belief systems regarding the birth of Jesus and the, um, the seasonal traditions. There was also uh, some paganism that was worked into the Christmas season. It was originally a season of the harvest that was merged with Christian beliefs during that time period and bringing all the good elements of everything together. So we have this concept of the feast at Christmas time that comes from originally more of a pagan custom. And then you have stories that are influenced by other countries. For example, you have uh, in the Scandinavian countries, when you send us a letter to Santa Claus, for example, uh, the Santa Claus tradition itself, when you write a letter to Santa Claus in to Santa Claus in the um, Scandinavian countries, you write the letter and then you burn it in a fireplace. And that's how it gets to Santa. So that's something that we don't necessarily see over here in the United States. We send it to the mail. Um, there's other traditions that, for example, like in, uh, in Latin America, a very big 
on the baby Jesus, and you don't put up a manger with the baby Jesus in it until Jesus doesn't show up in the manger until Christmas Eve. That's when you, uh, at, on midnight on Christmas Eve, then you put the baby in the manger. Uh, a lot of times here in the United States, you see people putting up the, uh, the manger scene with the baby intact, but it's not supposed to be in there, technically, until Christmas Eve, because that's when he was born. So it's an interesting little tradition that has evolved from the religious aspects as well as some of the other countries' viewpoints on this sort of thing as the way it's practiced around the world. So you have these wonderful traditions that have been modified by so many different countries and influences over the years, and some people adopt certain aspects of the Christmas celebrations based on their family's traditions, but there are some that become more broad-based, like Christmas cards and Christmas ornaments on Christmas trees within the home and things like that that get spread through a great portion of countries around the world. Uh, As a sidestep on Christmas ornaments, I once had the opportunity to visit a village in Germany. I was working with a stained glass company down in Atlanta uh, for my brother-in-law, who owned the company at the time. I later bought it and ran the company for a decade and then sold it. But during the time that he owned it, he had an interest in bringing in some handmade Christmas ornaments and other glass items. And he discovered when he was on vacation over in Europe that there had been a town in East Germany, and this was the time when the wall had just come down in East Germany about a year before, and he was on a vacation over in Europe, and he found out that there was this town behind the wall in East Germany that had a 200-year or 300-year tradition in glass blowing, and he was intrigued. But he did not want to go there with my sister, who is his wife, Uh, because he didn't know how safe it was. And there was a lot of news reports about how unsafe East Germany or former East Germany was for travelers during this time. This was all over the news. So he wanted to go there with somebody, and he took me with him. So the two of us flew into formerly East Germany. And, uh, well, actually, we flew into West Germany in Frankfurt, and then we took a rented a car and drove across the line because there was no airports where anywhere near where we needed to fly into. And so we went to Frankfurt and we drove over there and it was probably a couple hour car drive. Um, and then we, I, I distinctly remember the experience of crossing over into East Germany, of what was East Germany. And you see the old guard tower on the wall and the old remnants of the wall. And, and at this section, there really wasn't a wall. There was a big uh, remains of a barbed wire fence and there was a guard tower. And, um, As soon as we left West Germany, and we had a lot of experiences getting there, um, because neither of us spoke German, which is probably a whole story by itself, but um, we were following a map that we had, and um, we crossed in to East Germany, and suddenly all the color left the landscape, and that was one of the things I noticed almost immediately. And this was still at night, but you could see the difference. There was no neon, there was no lighted signs on businesses. All of that was there in West Germany, and suddenly you cross over this line where the wall had been and then you're driving into formerly east germany and everything was gray and black and it looked like it'd been um just covered with this ash you know it was a strange look and a strange eerie there was no 
neon, no lighted signs on buildings. Now later on on this trip, we learned why the buildings looked gray and black. They, When we got into the town of Lausha, we saw that there was a lot of construction on the roadways, which made it even more challenging with all the snow and the big lorry trucks, which were big trucks that would come downtown. They had these big ditches being dug in the downtown area, and whole sections of the town were barricaded with cones and uh, construction barriers and that sort of thing. And the reason is they were installing gas lines, and the entire city, as well as many other communities in Germany, in the East German side, were still burning coal up till the wall went down. So until the, the reunification was beginning, that was um, how they heated places. So they were way back into the 1940s in terms of their uh, infrastructure within these communities. So they were being upgraded on a rapid basis within the first two years with a lot of grant money coming from West Germany to do this. So thus, buildings were covered with coal and soot because that was the form of heating that uh, was common in the whole area. Nobody had gas lines. And um, it just was a, a noticeable difference. Okay, so we drove in and we were probably a half hour, 45 minutes into East Germany, and we could not figure out where we were at. We got lost, and um, there were no distinct road markers like there were in West Germany. As soon as you got over that side, like the road signs disappeared. So you're following roads that are on a map that you think you're accurate, and you're thinking you're taking the right turn, but there's no way to verify that you're on the right road. And so we pull up at this store that was like a convenience store type place, and um, there were some lights there. And uh, my brother-in-law gets out, and I, I'm sitting in the passenger seat, and, he, and the windshield wipers are going because it's snowing and it's cold. And I got the heater on in this little tiny German car. you know. We're, and he goes in, and he says, I'm going to see if I can find someone that can help tell me where this road is and if we're on the right track. And I see him get out of the car, and he goes and he's, he crosses in front of me in the windshield. And he walks up to the first guy that comes out of the store. And this guy was... Oh my goodness. From where I was sitting, he looked like he was six foot five. I'm a big guy, muscular. And he walks up to to uh, my brother-in-law and my brother-in-law asks, I could see him talking to him. And suddenly, you know, they're, they're chatting for a few minutes back and forth. And you know, I don't know how it's going because I can't hear anything. I got the windshield wiper going. And suddenly I see this big man drop his packages that he's carrying, like two big grocery bags or something, sets them on the ground. He reaches over and picks my brother-in-law up in a bear hug, and he lifts him off the ground, and the guy's like, his feet's off the ground. I said, oh my God, did he just get attacked? What happened? And then the guy puts him back down, and I see the man is actually laughing and smiling, and I thought, okay, this is not, you know, but instantly when it happens, you're going, oh my gosh, all these stories that you're told about the news about is dangerous. Oh, what am I going to do? You know, all that flashed through my head. And then I saw that the man was just overwhelmed with joy, and he was laughing and patting my brother-in-law on the back, and he was giving him some hand gestures. Well, it turns out when my brother-in-law got back in the car, he says, "Well, that was an interesting experience." He said he finally got through to him that he was an American, and he was looking for this town that we were looking for, which was called Lausha. And as soon as the guy registered in his head that we were Americans, he completely turned his demeanor from being this rough, rugged uh, German guy who was ready to take a fight, and he turned into this over-joyous, happy man. 
And he told you know him that you know he he loved Americans. They were so happy that we were here, and he was just so happy to help us. And we were, uh, ironically, um, just about maybe three blocks away from where we needed to turn left. And he pointed that out to us, and he showed us the uh, directed us where the road was. So that was our first experience with the East Germans, and uh, and we made our way into the town. And a little backstory on this: we had he had written a letter to the town's mayor asking. Explained that we wanted to, we were coming on this trip and we wanted to be introduced to business owners that were involved in glassmaking, but we never got a response. But the time got closer for the trip, and he said, "Well, I'm not going to cancel the trip. I'm just going to go, and we're going to figure out when we get there." So we were going into this blind. So that kind of probably should have been told beforehand. So we pull into this town of Lausche, Germany, and it's nighttime. It's probably eight o'clock at night. At this point, by the time we're getting into this place, we flew in. I think we landed somewhere in Frankfurt at about 3. So we'd been on the road for about five hours at this point. And we're tired and exhausted and hungry. We've been, we, we had stopped at some place and gotten um, some bread and sandwich meat from a grocery store and figured out that that was sandwich meat and bread, you know. And so we had maybe some peanut butter sandwiches or something or sandwiches. And... Um, but we were exhausted. We didn't know where we were going to stay that night. We didn't know what kind of welcome we were going to receive. And we couldn't read the language on any of the buildings. And the limited signage that were on the buildings were nothing there. I mean, there was nothing that registered with us. We couldn't, nothing in English, you know, it was all German. So I'm sitting there with this little translator guide in my lap trying to figure out stuff. And we're going through this town. And suddenly I see this sign that was fairly well lit on this building. And it said, Rathaus, R-A-T-H-A-U-S. Uh, and I looked that up quickly and it said City Hall. And I was like, wow, that's what, that's City Hall. I said, you know, turn around. So we turned around and we pulled into City Hall. We figured if anything's going to happen, we're going to have a conversation with the mayor, even if we sit here till morning or something. So we go in, there's this little German woman, um, probably in her 50s, and she's sitting behind a desk when we walk in, which being late at night, that we thought that was kind of unusual, but she was sitting there, and we kind of told her who she was. She says she brightened up, she made some phone calls, and um, suddenly the mayor of the town showed up with an English translator, and um, that was when the whole story changed. So, anyways, they had been waiting for us. They had sent a letter back in response welcoming us, but our post office, because it had been sent to my brother-in-law personally and not to the business address had rather than bring it to us and say this is is this you they sent it all the way back to germany it was a foolish thing our local post office did so we never got the letter that they were welcoming us um so anyways we're there they had a translator set up for us they had a bed and breakfast set up for us they didn't know if we were going to arrive or not they knew what day that was why the lady was sitting there late at night waiting for us they knew what day we were arriving so she was under instructions to remain there until like 10 o'clock if necessary um so the mayor comes up. He doesn't speak a lick of English, but the translator was an English school teacher. Wonderful people. And so we spent um, about five or six days in Lausha, and we they had all of these artists lined up for us. So we were going around a lot of these houses. And the reason I ventured into this story, because many of the artists made Christmas ornaments and I learned a lot about the Christmas spirit that was still lingering in this town, even though it had been suppressed by the oppressive government that these people had been under. They still were manufacturing Christmas ornaments. They still believed in Christmas. I mean, their churches had been shut down. They'd been boarded up by the government. Um, their um, 
they were in a constant state of uh, the secret police were always reporting people and taking people away. So uh, any kind of Christmas celebrations were really under the um, on the down low and things like that. And, and, and there really wasn't anything, anything remotely connected to a religious celebration of the holidays was suppressed. So you had this, you know, this government regime that was going on there. But you still had the spirit of Christmas within these people. And something about being in an old German town during the middle of winter, and this was a few months before Christmas, I believe, may have been in October, um, and it was just a very snowy time uh, that time of year. And we're dealing with people talking about Christmas balls and Christmas ornaments, you know. It was just a very special experience, and I remember us bringing back uh, Christmas ornaments and selling them in our store over the holiday season, but also planning ahead for the next year to have those on display. But yeah, it was a very special experience, and the it was a very deep-rooted tradition with Christmas ball making there. And they had a small little museum they took us to that was connected with this Christmas ball manufacturing company. There was one company there that had that did glass blowing, but all they did was Christmas ornaments. And they had accounts and shipment all over uh, Russia and other places, but they had opened up in the the two years that they'd been, the wall had been opened to do business in England and other parts. So they had already established shipping lines and uh, shipping connections. So they were a big company and um, doing a, a lot of Christmas ornaments. I think they were producing probably, I would venture to guess, probably 50,000 Christmas ornaments per month out of that factory and uh, throughout the year. And they were shipping all over the place, uh, particularly to England. And so we got onto their uh, disbursement or their shipping lines. And uh, they had a small little museum there that showed some of the history of glass making. And a lot of it was very uh, Christmas themed in their history. So it was very fascinating. Uh, and you can see the Victorian influence even through the German culture in there. And um, and of course, Christmas trees and Christmas ornaments, as I said before, were a German tradition that spread around the world and was merged with the Victorian culture from that whole experience. So in addition to Christmas balls, some of the other types of glass making that was going on was a lot of individual sculptures that these uh, guys would make, little caricatures. There were these big uh glass paperweight type manufacturers and all, all kinds of paperweights from various sizes, some of them as big as like a football with sculptures worked into that as well. There were also a lot of stemware and uh, glass vases and things like that being manufactured by the various artists. So everyone had different skills. A lot of them all took the same training and learned how to do all of these things, but then they specialized in particular aspects of the art that uh, they were most inspired by. So we had different types of products that we were looking at in this journey, but Christmas balls was one of them. And ultimately, we never really got into shipping in Christmas balls too much because their packing for glass products was not anywhere near that you would find in other parts of the world when you order glass products. They would often just put the Christmas balls in a bunch of newspapers and then uh, very very little paper taping or anything or protection. So we would get shipments of Christmas balls and, and ornaments from certain artists and certain companies there. And we'd open up the box and it was just nothing but broken glass. Uh, that was the early days of dealing with the Germans and their mentality. And uh, there were some other issues that we had 
problems with working with the Laotians over the years. And I think we only worked with them for a couple of years and we abandoned the whole idea. Um, there was just a lot of problems with back orders and shipping us items that we didn't order to fill other orders because that's how you did it in the communist system. When you didn't have something in the bread line, you were given something else. So if you went there and you wanted bread, but they didn't have bread, but they had pickles, you came home with pickles. And that was their mentality with business shipping. You'd order, you know, 15 sculptures of bears that are glass because those were selling as a retailer. And then you get your box in a month later to resupply and it's not bears but it's cats and that's because they had cats that weren't selling and they didn't have any bears made at the time so they sent us cats instead and that was some of the experiences that we had in addition to the heavy levels of breakage uh, during that time and packing wasn't anywhere near it is today with back in the 90s so we ended up abandoning that whole importing part of our business at the time but that was just an interesting uh, side note of the story I probably digressed a little further than you wanted to hear, but I I hope that you found that story interesting, as well as some of the information on Victorian holiday traditions. And, of course, there are many other traditions that we could probably talk about, um, everything from food to cookies to uh, cuisine, other types of cuisine to jewelry to types of wrapping of presents and things like that. There's a lot of stories that emerged from the original Christmas celebration, but uh, a lot of different interesting traditions. Uh, the, the tradition of gift giving actually was a New Year's Eve custom and uh, the wrapping of presents. And the, and the presents originally were very small. Uh, they were things like little uh, fruit and nuts and uh, oranges and apples, and they didn't become larger and larger gifts. And when they were, the gifts became too large, that's another important thing to remember, when the gifts usually were kept on the tree. They were that small. They could be tied to the tree with ribbons. And when the gifts became larger as the traditions changed, the gifts were placed under the tree as part of the Victorian tradition. So there's this whole evolution of these wonderful early traditions that still carry forward even into present day. So that's a little bit of the history of the Victorian era traditions. If you like this episode, I let me know in the comments and the survey. And maybe I can do some more on this in the future of this holiday season. Um, And of course, if you liked today's episode, please leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on. And please tell your friends about it. If you see this uh, episode posted on social media, please share it with others and let people know about the podcast and invite them to join and listen. Um, The podcast this year has had some tremendous growth and it's been a lot of hard work. I've had about a 78% increase in listeners this year over the season one And that's a tremendous growth for a small podcast like myself talking about a very niche, carved out part of history of Southwest Michigan. Uh, But I'm going to continue going forward into season three starting in uh, 2024. And I hope that you will be along with me on this journey. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can always find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And if you want to meet me in person, come on down to the Battle Creek Regional History Museum. Get tickets for Tales of Christmas Pass, which is happening on December 16th of this month. 
which is a Saturday. There are two performances, one at 2 p.m. and one at 6 p.m. The 2 p.m. performance is almost sold out, so hurry and get your tickets. Um, come to the evening performance. That's usually the just as fun and maybe even more fun because it's the time when we let loose. A lot of times at 2 p.m. there's a lot of kids there, so... Uh, come on out and join us. You can get tickets in the link in the show note descriptions, or if you go on Facebook, look up the Battle Creek Regional History Museum group and join that, and you'll see links to where you can buy tickets there. Or you can go on the Battle Creek Regional History Museum website, bcrhm.org. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening. <laughs>